Welcome football fans. Buckle up for another hard-hitting episode of Let's Talk XFL, the only podcast solely focused on the XFL. From a sunny Southwest Florida studio, here's your host Michael Lathrop. Hello football fans. This is episode 39, another lawsuit, rights fee, and substantial income. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Royal Retros by 503 Sports. Royal Retros are the king of throwbacks. Royal Retros by 503 Sports provides a line of merchandise from legendary defunct leagues such as the XFL 1.0. If you've always wanted to get yourself a quality Las Vegas Outlaws He Hate Me or Los Angeles Extreme Tommy Maddox jersey, perhaps even an OG XFL's team's t-shirt, we have you covered. Simply click on the link provided in the show's description and notes and enter the code Let's Talk XFL at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. It has been somewhat of a slow XFL news week, yet there are a few developments worth mentioning. In addition, later in the show, I will be joined by XFL board writer Greg Parks to discuss the XFL cities, coaching assignments, and venues. We will also be joined by wide receiver Jake Bossever to discuss his football journey showcase experience, and draft invitation. But first, we have those developments to cover. So, let's get to it. On July 28th, Fightful.com's Jeremy Lambert reported that according to PW Insider, a new lawsuit against Vince McMahon, World Wrestling Entertainment, Danny Garcia, ESPN, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Dick Ebersol, WWE Chief Safety Officer Frank Riddick, Riddick's wife Carol, and many others were filed on July 20th before the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas by David Adrian Smith related to the XFL Football League. The article includes some of the lawsuit's details. However, I will not dive into them until I can verify the lawsuit by either obtaining the complaint or other notable media companies covering it. I feel it is worth mentioning, and if I obtain more information, I will cover it. Then, on July 29th, the Athletics' Daniel Kaplan and Bill Shea released an article, Can the XFL and USFL Coexist or is a Merger in the Offing? Their article has some interesting information. What caught my eye was the following. The parties won't comment on the economic of the deal, but a source said there is a rights fee. There is substantial income from day one the source texted of the XFL contract, who then compared the league strategy to the 2020 startup version. But every aspect of the overall plan is better, from the way they will leverage their new owners, which include Dwayne The Rock Johnson, to the way they see the game being played, to the TV deals, to the marketplaces they chose, to the way they are housing players, to fan engagement plans. Later in the article, it states, In 2020, Ads during the XFL games gained up to $50 million during the truncated season, but were more effective than the USFL in-game ads, the firm said. EDO data shows that TV viewers were 30% more engaged with the ads during the short XFL season in 2020 than the USFL in 2022. However, advertisers might be wondering if the XFL will continue to carry as much weight now that the spring football schedule is denser with both leagues airing games around the same time, said Laura Grover. EDO Senior Vice President and Head of Client Solutions via email. There is more information included in the article. I recommend you take a moment to read it. But the major takeaway from it is, there is substantial income from day one. 
This is significantly different information than what some within the alternative football community have been claiming. Although we do not have a monetary figure, it is now safe to say the XFL have some version of a rights deal and not a production deal. Then, on July 30th, Chris Miller posted on his Twitter account, Life update. After 16 years of being a college football film coordinator, I am excited to share that I have taken a jump and joined the XFL as a film coordinator for the San Antonio team. As a father, husband, and professional, this was an opportunity I could not miss. Prior to joining the XFL, Miller's experience includes University of Wyoming as student filmer and eventually became the film coordinator of the football team for six seasons, University of Houston as film coordinator and creative director of the football team for three seasons, Air Force Academy as a director of film and creative for the football team for five seasons, returned to the University of Houston in July of 2020 to resume his previous role, and also worked with the U.S. Olympic swim team and created content and commercials for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Miller has extensive experience and should be an excellent addition to the XFL and the San Antonio team. As I have previously mentioned, I will now be joined by XFL board writer Greg Parks to discuss the XFL cities, coaching assignments, and venues. Welcome, Greg. I appreciate you taking the time to join the show to discuss the XFL Town Hall announcement of cities and coaching assignments and even venues. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Oh, I really appreciate it. I know this has kind of been in the works. We have been chatting about the city's announcement for a while. I'm like, oh, okay, we'll wait, we'll wait. Well, we have all waited. So finally, we have the announcement everyone has been waiting for. We have the eight cities their venues, coaching assignments. So just to recover it, Bob Stutes at Arlington at Choctaw Stadium in Arlington, Texas. We have Wade Phillips in Houston at TDECU Stadium. We have Rod Woodson in Las Vegas, which is to be announced. So we don't have them all. We have Terrell Buckley in Orlando at Camping World Stadium. Heinz Ward in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome. Jim Hazlitt in Seattle at Lumen Field. Anthony Beck in St. Louis at the Dome at America Center. And Reggie Barlow in Washington, D.C. at Audi Field. These markets match exactly what Mike Mitchell and others had reported a few months back. Did anything surprise you? I guess the only thing that surprised me was Arlington being the team name was formerly Dallas. Uh, the Dallas Renegades in 2020, which Bob Stoops was the coach of, is now going to be apparently uh, known as Arlington, which on some level makes sense because Choctaw Stadium, where they play, is in Arlington. And I, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, this was probably sort of a give and take between the league and the city of Arlington. We know based on Monday's announcement that XFL's headquarters are going to be featured in Arlington. And all the teams will practice during training camp and the regular season throughout that area. So it may have been a little bit of a, as I said, a give and take between the league and the city that the city said, okay, we'll house you. We'll allow your headquarters to be here. But in exchange, we want this Dallas team to be known as Arlington because you are playing in Arlington, your headquarters in Arlington. I'm sure the mayor of Arlington would like to get some recognition for all of that and to do so through the team name. I can't imagine this was solely an XFL decision. You don't go from 
a, a city the size of Dallas and voluntarily change it to Arlington, I don't think. I don't think that does anything positive for the league in terms of recognition. I think the bigger cities that you are in, the better chance you have of seeming more major league. And certainly Dallas is more of a quote unquote major league city than Arlington is historically uh, throughout sports in general. So this to me screams a move made as a conciliatory move in order for the XFL to be headquartered there. They agreed to change the name of Dallas team to Arlington. I agree. I think it is a big picture move. And I don't mean in the name big picture because fans, like you said, we obviously don't have a New York and we don't have a Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. When we look at broadcasting, all of the networks always want that. So though that must be somewhere a conversation with Disney, ESPN, the ABC networks. They must have been on board with it, which is kind of shocking because that will impact ratings in some way. I know some are talking about, well, 25% of the ratings came from those two markets in 2020. So they're going to lose 25%. Well, time out, people. There's no way that everybody that tuned into the XFL is just not going to tune in this time around. So it won't be 25% drop. It will be probably a significant drop if they're not tuning into their team. But I, I would still assume. And there's also no way. In. Sorry, Mike, but there's also no way to, to know that the people in those cities were tuning in specifically because there was a team in those cities. We saw that New York and L.A. were in the bottom third of attendance uh, for the games in those uh, cities. So uh, just because there is no team in those cities doesn't mean people will not continue to tune into the XFL from those cities. 100%. The reality about New York City and Los Angeles is the fact that people are moving to them because there's that whole vibe. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, right? So people are moving to the Big Apple because they're dreaming big. So there's people from every state. There's people from multiple countries. The, the nationality and demographics in New York City are second to none. I mean, I worked there for a year and a half back in my late 20s. So it is a different vibe. I don't know anybody that I worked with or knew from my time in New York City that was actually born and raised in New York City. That's how crazy it was. Everybody was from somewhere. So I agree. You're latching on to whatever your hometown, your home state team might have been. There's going to be a segment, a a portion, a population that's going to tune in for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Now, to kind of touch back on to Arlington for a little bit, they obviously couldn't go with the generic Texas like you see with the Texas Rangers for the Major League Baseball. So I do think the Arlington name is very... It's for particular reasons. You said give and take. I agree. I think there's a lot more financially tied to that. And I'm not saying the city of Arlington is paying the XFL to name them Arlington. What I mean is the XFL got a whole lot coming from the city of Arlington. We know the hybrid hub. It's not just their headquarters, but their hybrid hub is, is going to be there. We know there's multiple other stadiums that are being used for practice venues. They're housing all players. There's a bunch of restaurants and caterers that are all tied in here. So there is a lot going on there that I think the city of Arlington probably helped coordinate in a bit. It probably helped bring together a package deal, much like we probably saw in Birmingham for the USFL. We know the city got very involved 
with coordinating the stadiums and practice venues and big tax breaks, a city there pony up a lot of money. We might be dealing with something that very similar here in the XFL. Now, the difference with the XFL is they're tight lip. They have been quiet. We know we get leaks of things out there and they tend to be true more often than not, but we're not getting the whole story. There's a whole lot going on. Like even recently, there's been a few executives that left. I know some people are like, oh, that doesn't look good. But then Rev Entertainment's kind of coming in and filling some of that that void. So something was in the works before Lisa Fiegenbaum just up and resigned. So she must have knew something was coming. So I think there's a lot of things that have happened. That's why I think Arlington, it is definitely a concession. But it's I don't think it's really going to hurt them that much compared to what they're probably receiving back. Yeah, and this hybrid hub, whatever you want to call it, I think is sort of a happy medium between the extreme on one end, which is what the USFL did, where everything was based in Birmingham. All the games were played there. They didn't travel to their home cities and was a strict cost-saving measure versus what we saw in XFL 2020, where they, although they did hold training camp in Houston, they went to those cities and they played and they stayed there. So, you know, I understand the hesitation about embracing this model that the XFL is using because there are lots of questions. And for me, my main issue with it beyond the competitive advantage that the Texas teams will have and that they're going to have to travel a lot less than the other teams is when you are a brand that is trying to gain a foothold in these cities and in these communities, how do you do that when the teams are only traveling there one or two days on game weeks? So, you know, the thing that gives me hope a little bit is the press release that the XFL put out announcing this hub. They did have a line in there about how they are committed to being a part of these communities in these cities, even while the players are going to be housed in Texas. So I think they recognize they kind of answered a question that they knew was going to come up with this announcement. And they answered that already in the press release. And I know uh, the guys, the Mark cast asked Danny Garcia about that uh, on Monday after the press conference that was held. And she reiterated that, that the XFL would still have a presence. I think Russ Brandon, the XFL president also uh, noted that the XFL was committed to having a presence in these cities, that there would be people who worked for the team who would be uh, stationed in these cities. So it would not be, you know, completely dormant from XFL representation in those cities. So I feel a little better after hearing about that, even though we didn't hear any specifics about how the XFL is going to go about doing that. It does make me feel a little better about this. And, you know, the XFL, you can tell with the contracts, with, you know, playing in these home cities and getting leases to stadiums the size of the Alamo Dome and Camping World Stadium, which are not small stadiums, this is going to be a, a pretty expensive venture. And if they can cut costs in certain ways that are not going to have a, a dramatic effect on fans' enjoyment of the games or fans' investment in the product, then I think they should do it. Back at the XFL showcase, the Florida XFL showcase that you and I attended, I did ask the coaches all the same question, perhaps because I was trying to get them to slip up and maybe say <laughs> what city they were in. But you remember we were told not to ask about cities. Right, so I tried right. to find a, a little way to ask without asking it directly. But I remember Coach Beck 
was saying, well, we'll just get boots on the ground. And I remember Rod Woodson also saying the same thing is we'll be at schools. Knowing that this was coming, we knew we were hearing a hub version out of Texas from Mike Mitchell for a while and, you know, others. I'm like, how is that going to happen? You're going to hold your training camp. You're going to hold all your practices during the week. Even if you're a day or two, you can't be building that on Friday if the game is on Saturday. Even if you're at the schools. I mean, I don't have children, but I have nieces and nephews. And I know how they come run up. Hey, can we do this tomorrow? Can we do this tonight? If it's not in the plan, we'll think about it. You know, mom and dad's always going to say, we'll think about it. Well, there's no way all those kids are going to convince their parents to go take them tomorrow if it's Friday at school to the Saturday game. There's a little bit more that goes into it. There's still a cost factor, even though it doesn't cost what the NFL costs to go to games. But I remember when I went to Guardians games, the parking cost more than what I paid for the ticket. Yeah, It was crazy. And then we had a to get the best deal, you had to buy it for the season. And when the season came to a prop hall, I didn't get reimbursed for the games I didn't go to. So let's just say that those two games I attended, parking was very expensive when you look at that one. Looking at that, I just, there's got to be something sooner. Maybe the coaches start right after the draft and start spending time in their communities. Maybe before they really start getting all the players in to start camps. I can't imagine how they really are going to do this. XFL 2.0 also had their own team presidents and their own teams in the cities taking care of local marketing, whatever grassroots marketing. They don't have that this time around. And if they do, we definitely don't know anything about it. Yeah, I, I suppose there's still room for a team president to be hired. We know that each team has a director of team operations, which the description is more of a liaison between the team and the league rather than someone who is working in the city doing promotions, doing marketing. So I think there is still room for a team president role to work specifically on those issues. Uh, So that we'll see if that ends up coming out. But I thought XFL 2.0 did a fantastic job uh, in terms of the local marketing. They had booths set up at high school football games every Friday during the fall. They did tremendous community outreach. And you're right, like, how how is that going to happen? We've seen some coaches have already done interviews in the local markets after the announcement was made. I know Anthony Becht has already done some interviews with St. Louis media. The nature of media these days is so many interviews are done through Zoom, which can be done anywhere. We're doing it right now. So, you know, even when you watch the local news and there is an interview with a, a local player and they air it on the local news, it's a, it's a Zoom interview, even though they're kind of in, in the same market. So I don't think from a media standpoint, it's going to be difficult. I think where the challenge is going to be is getting the investment from the community and and getting those people aware of the brand and doing that sort of thing. You know, Danny Garcia and The Rock know how to market. (laughs) They know how to market themselves. So I'm sure they've got some ideas and, and it's just going to be one of those things that's going to unfold over time. But, you know, they're starting to take season ticket deposits and, you want to get out in those communities as soon as you can to make fans aware so they can plunk down their hard-earned cash to buy season tickets as soon as possible. I completely agree. I know uh, recently Jay Noakes, he's a podcast host for the weekly XFL podcast, and he also writes, or he's part of the XFL news, news sub team. And 
he tweeted that he remembered back when Dwayne the Rock Johnson came back to his school, his high school, and was promoting the Gridiron, the Gridiron Gang, or whatever it was, the movie that he was a part of. Yeah, that's the type of stuff that's going to have to happen. You're going to have to not just be going to elementary schools. You're going to need to be in middle schools. You're going to need to be in high schools. You're going to need to be out in just community events, whether it's festivals, fairs, and have a booth set up and just be rubbing elbows. And that yeah. needs to happen. And here we are, tail end of July. If you're going to start taking advantage of state fairs or festivals, like typically now is the time to do it. I know in Florida, where we are located, we are blessed to have good weather almost all year round. You know, forget, you know, hurricane season or tropical storm season where it's hit, hit and miss. But if you're back up in New York where we're from, which most people don't know, we're from the same hometown. It's kind of funny. We'll kind of share that right now. So we knew, we weren't best of friends or anything, but we knew each other. And we're, not, we're from the same two light town, which is kind of crazy yeah. people that we're now 13, 1400 miles from where we grew up and still uh, bumping elbows at uh, showcases and, and doing podcasts. Not only two, not only two huge XFL fans who cover the league from the same hometown, but who moved to the same area of South Florida too. I mean, general area within an hour and a half, two hours of each other. It's just wild. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy to think of, but we just kind of spun off there to think about back in New York. Like now is your County fairs. Now is your state fair will start in August and go into Labor Day weekend. Like, they have a very small window, and we know that players won't be assigned to teams, so you can't be moving players. Even, I mean, the drafts are not going to happen until November. So even if you have your draft late, I think what we're hearing, mid-November for the draft? Mid-November, yeah. So now you have the holiday after that. So late November, you're not going to do anything because it's Thanksgiving. Then you got the lead-up to Christmas and... Hanukkah and all that. So you're kind of running in some tight windows if you're going to try to get the players in market because once camp starts, you're not you're not taking anybody anywhere. And I do wonder if the head coaches are going to do a lot of that heavy lifting. You know, I think that could be an added bonus to hiring coaches that are so well known that name recognition, even though many of them don't have the coaching bona fides that others do. You know, the Rod Woodsons, the Heinz Wards, the Terrell Buckleys, they're all 10 plus year NFL veterans, college football Hall of Famers, NFL Hall of Famers, Super Bowl champions. These are guys that even some casual NFL fans will recognize. And so I wonder if that's sort of an added bonus of hiring these guys is they can go into these home markets and many of them have a relationship already with that city, Wade Phillips in Houston, for example. Uh, former coach there. Anthony Becht played in St. Louis. He's the head coach there now. So that some of them already have those established roots in those cities. But I wonder if the coaches are going to do a lot of the boots on the ground type of marketing in these cities and just, you know, attract notice based on their name value. Yeah, I think that's really what's going to have to happen. But what's interesting is kind of go back. The Markcast host there, Reed, was in Las Vegas, I, th- I believe a week or two ago on vacation and he was wearing his XFL hat or whatever. And he said he didn't get anybody that acknowledged it. And whoever he talked to didn't really know the XFL was even coming. So if he's walking the strip, people are from everywhere. I understand that. But if he's off the strip and where the locals were, it's kind of sad because Rod Woodson's not a hometown guy. He doesn't really have any ties 
you know, to Las Vegas. So I think there's definitely some some work to be cut out for the league. I mean, yeah, you know, the, I, I don't know that I put too much stock into that just because, you know, the people who are aware that the XFL was coming to Las Vegas are the hardcores, the diehards like us who cover the league and who follow Mike Mitchell, who's been reporting on that for a while. The general populace, probably not aware of that. Rod Woodson has no specific ties to Vegas, but I want to note he's a former Raider and the Raiders now playing in Vegas. So there is a tie in there. But yeah, I I don't know how much stock I'd put into that. I think the real work begins when those cities were announced and and when Vegas was announced. So, you know, if Reed was to go back there in a month or two and people still didn't know that the XFL was coming to Vegas, then I think that would be cause for concern. So to kind of look back at the venues, I know we kind of, briefly mentioned so some of the venues are the same from 2020 so we have audi field which i think that soccer specific stadium size is actually ideal for the xfl one you could really fill it up even if you don't sell it out it looks like a sellout on television so even if you're at a 20,000 seat stadium and you're selling 17 18,000 it looks really good on tv and most people don't realize the stadiums are that small of capacity we get into some of the bigger stadiums i'm not too concerned in st louis because same stadium and we know 2020 they were doing really well and they were upticking with the rumors of potentially 50,000 people some people say sell out but i was hearing 50,000 for their next home game before the cord got pulled uh, i know seattle also lumen field was the same venue they drew well in the 20s Still a pretty large venue in TDECU, same venue, but that's what, about 40,000 capacity, 40, 42, something like that. A little smaller not, than these NFL-sized stadiums. But, I mean, if they can pull 20 yeah. or a little more than that, and depending if they tarp off, you know, corners like we've seen in the USFL, you could probably make it work and not look too terrible. Choctaw Stadium, which is the same one the Renegades played in in 2020. And their configuration, it's a bigger stadium, but the way they configure it is different because you can't use the baseball layout. So it does reduce the capacity. It does look weird, I know, slightly. But the concern here, I look at Orlando, and I just don't understand. There's so many venues in Orlando, and I don't know why you'd go with the largest one in the market. It's older it's large. I think it's seats in the fifties. They could have had, it was Exploria stadium where the Orlando city, the MLS team plays that could have been ideal. And then they call the, what is it? Central Florida, the university there. They play at this place called the bounce house, which is 40 some thousand. It just seems like they either couldn't get those other venues on board willing to negotiate, or maybe they got a heck of a deal to use a stadium that doesn't really get used that much anymore in Orlando. Yeah, the UCF Knights Stadium, I believe, is where the Orlando Apollos of the Alliance of American Football played for their 2019 season. And so you would think if the Apollos were able to play there in 2019 during the same time frame that the XFL would be playing in 2022, there would be no real, you know, cause for scheduling issues that would come up. Uh, I know that the college's spring football and their spring games would be happening Uh, probably around that time. So you might have to schedule games around that. But I I think that would have been ideal. Camping World Stadium, I think you're going to potentially run into the same problems you ran into in Tampa playing in Raymond James Stadium, where, you know, you mentioned if you draw 17,000 in a 20,000 seat stadium, it looks great on TV. But if you draw 17,000 in a stadium that seats 60,000, it's going to look empty. 
And so there's got to be some reason why they chose uh, Camping World Stadium. And when in doubt, always think financially. And so maybe there was a financial incentive or some kind of break that they got to play there. It's the only thing I could think of that makes sense. But again, we're speculating. That's all we can do when we don't have information. And I'm not a big speculator, but technically, you know, we are. It just doesn't make sense because if anyone that is familiar with Orlando, Exploria Stadium and Camping World are not that far apart. You can literally see it from one another. If you're in that neck of the woods, it would seem like, well, there has to be a financial piece. Because if you could have had the smaller one that's newer, closer to the arena, I just think there's a better parking situation down that way. And not only that, it's just better for pre-game, post-game. That part of Orlando is really cool. I don't know what you call it, but it's kind of got that golden look. It's all modern. There's a lot of restaurants, bars there. But Camping World pulls away from that. So, I don't know. There's got to be a financial piece to it. Other than that, I mean, I look at most of them, and it's not really that surprising because they went back to most of the same. And San Antonio, the Alamo Dome, yes, it's large, but where else would they play? I know there's a couple other stadiums in the area that I looked at, but most of them are just, they're not really suitable for professional football. And they drew well with the AAF in 2019. San Antonio by far uh, had the the largest attendance and granted it's going to be four years removed from that in 2023. So there's no guarantee that they'll draw the same, but it's something, you know, it's something to to build on from that. You know, you, you asked me at the outset, what surprised me from the announcements of the cities and venues and certainly Las Vegas being TBA was a big surprise as well, especially when you think about the viable stadiums and arenas that are in Las Vegas. There are quite a few venues there, but there are not a lot of venues that could house a professional football team like the Las Vegas team. So, I mean, you're looking at Allegiant Stadium, you're looking at Sam Boyd Stadium, a lot of the arenas that they have, T-Mobile Arena, MGM Grand Arena, those are probably too small to fit a 110-yard football field and and sidelines and everything like that. And so, you know, Sam Boyd Stadium is is probably, I I know there's some reporting out there that there is a, a hold on that and there's not really a way that the XFL can play there because there's some machinations behind the scenes that is causing Sam Boyd Stadium to sit empty. So that really leaves Allegiant Field as the only place to play. So I guess the options are come to an agreement with Allegiant Field. And really, the XFL lost a lot of their leverage when they announced Las Vegas as a city. If they're still negotiating with Allegiant Stadium, there's really no leverage because it's you know, they've already announced the city, but I think they were kind of up against it. And they really had to, at that point, announce the cities, even if they didn't have all the venues. So you're either playing in Allegiant Stadium or maybe you're playing in Texas. Maybe you're playing in Choctaw Stadium with that Las Vegas franchise. If you can't come to terms uh, with Allegiant Stadium, which would be a pretty bad look for the league, I think. But, you know, if it's going to save them, again, if it's going to save them a significant amount of money, by not playing in Allegiant, then maybe that'll end up in the long run being the right move. Yeah. Sam Boyd, you mentioned there's definitely, I could share the rumors of what people are claiming, but I don't like to try to get into the the rumor. And, but like you said, there's a reason why it's empty. It's almost tied to the NFL as to why. And Allegiant's just large. I, I don't know the capacity off it off the top of my head, but that's a pretty large venue. Do you know how many, his seats? 
Uh, I just did a column for XFL board earlier in the week, looking at the venues and I included the capacity in there for those venues. So let me real quick check Allegiant stadium. It, well, I, I didn't list Allegiant stadium as the venue in my column because it wasn't official, but uh, let me see a quick look. Right. It, it is brand new. You know, the Raiders, I think led the NFL in it's uh, 65,000 is the capacity. So it's another, you know, large NFL size stadium. So it's going to be 60,000 plus. But the Raiders led the NFL in ticket revenue last year, their first year in Las Vegas. So I'm sure that was probably something that the XFL owners looked at and thought they might be able to capitalize on. Yeah, it's just as interesting. I mean, I really hope it's not what you also mentioned about the possibility that if they haven't nailed down details, it does not go well. Once you've named something, yeah. Somebody's not going to budge on on their end of negotiating at that point. It just business wise, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, it's like it's it's the what was uh, it came out in the Oliver Luck Vince McMahon lawsuit that Oliver Luck announced the venues before he had a deal with them, and that lost the XFL all this leverage, and they ended up paying a lot more than they should have been paying because he had already announced the venue without the contract being agreed to or signed. So it kind of feels a little similar to that situation. They didn't announce the venue, but when you look at the city they announced, it's really the only viable venue there, apparently. When everyone was chomping at the bit for these cities, like, why aren't they announcing them? And I'm like, I am a big Major League Soccer guy. I know most people don't really know, but, I, you know, I played collegiate soccer and all that stuff. So I'm also a soccer guy. You know, maybe I'm just a weird guy into all of the niche sports, if you will. <laughs> I, I don't know. So I, I happened to be very involved in like supporters culture and stuff in like that before I moved down here to Florida. So I have some people that are got some really good ties in major league soccer. And they were telling me for a while, they're like, well, the XFL may not be announcing because of Audi field to what they were hearing is that Audi wasn't really keen on bringing back the XFL. Now, I don't speculate, and here I am, I'm kind of getting to it now. Now it's been named, so whatever happened, happened. But I didn't want to be like people like, oh, they're not going back. I didn't want to be the uproar, right? Well, I was hearing it It wasn't really looking good. I was hearing that a lot of these venues were left holding the bag, so to speak, when the league shut down. Mm-hmm. And was hearing that also there's a good possibility that if they wanted to go back into certain venues that this – the 3.0 was going to have to pay that back rent to get in. And that was a lot of money. So again, I don't know what happened. Obviously they're back at Audi field. It's good to see them because that's the ideal venue. It's not just for DC. It would have been ideal to be in Orlando in the same situation. And looking again at Las Vegas, I heard a couple fans bring up this minor league baseball stadium. I guess that seats 10,000. I'm like, well, 10,000 is not going to cut it people. And even if you think back to, to Rochester, New York, where we grew up just south of there, they had the frontier field where the Rochester Red Wings played. But when the Rhinos came about in 1996, which was uh, a soccer team that actually did fairly well in the second tier, they were playing there and they did some interesting configurations that brought in supportable bleachers. And at times they could draw up to 14,000. But here's the thing. Even if you brought in portable bleachers into a 10,000 seat stadium and you drew 14,000 or 15,000 as a sellout every night, you're still not drawing what you should be drawing. So I just don't see a venue like that possible. 
I, you know, and I do wonder if a minor league baseball stadium would have the infrastructure that could change it over from a minor league baseball to a professional football field quickly, you know, because the XFL would be playing uh, at least in part during minor league baseball season. So there would have to be changeovers. And, you know, even if it is, I think well, it's probably in Vegas, it's a triple A team. Even if it is the, the highest level of minor league baseball, you just wonder if the stadium would have the infrastructure and the workers who would be able to make that changeover. Here's the thing. I did intern with the Rochester Rhinos between my junior and senior year of college. And I got to see that process and taking down the mound is no small feat. It is part of my language, a bitch. And to rebuild it back, it, yeah. it is beyond difficult because they got to be a certain height and certain, you know, pitch to it that comes out. So yeah, that was a challenge and you'd have to almost have a perfect way to do that, especially on quick turnarounds. Cause in some of those cases, you're not play- baseball. Anyone that obviously follows it knows that they play stands like, like it's like a series, three games, whatever. And then they're back on the road. Sometimes they might play three and then three more against somebody else at home. So there's small windows and that gets tough. And if you got to really tear down and build back, yeah, that's, that's, I just don't see it happening. I know somebody mentioned it. Can't remember who it was, was a fan of the show in one of the comments. And I was like, I just, I, I can't see it. It just doesn't seem viable. Even if you're bringing in 4,000, 6,000 portable seats to put along one line, it's just, if you're going to draw 14, 16 max is your max capacity. Nah, I just, I don't see yeah. it working. Maybe lease wise, it'd be cheap. It just doesn't seem like it's feasible. We kind of went down. Obviously, we knew the coaches for a long time. Now we got their assignments, which all match up with what Mike Mitchell and Aaron Wilson and a bunch of others had been reporting for quite some time. The other thing that came about on Monday, unfortunately, I had a previously scheduled player interview, which will eventually come out. I'm a little bit ahead on those folks, so I have several in the bag or on deck, so to speak. But I didn't want to cancel or try to reschedule. So unfortunately I missed inside the league's founder, Neil Stratton's zoom session, which he had with the XFL senior vice president of player personnel, Doug Whaley, executive vice president of football operations, Mark Ross and senior director of player administration and officiating operations, Russ Gigolo or Gigolo, however you pronounce it. Sorry, Russ, if you're listening, I understand that you did. Um, yeah partake in this session so if you wouldn't mind filling in for my incompetence here or for my lack (laughs) of being able to do so could you share with our listeners kind of what was covered and uh, what great news or bad news came from this session it was actually just Doug and Ross on the call Mark was not there which is kind of funny because he was scheduled to be on the interview list in in Florida too and he wasn't there or couldn't be found anyway So um, for more in-depth notes on this, I would direct you to my Twitter feed at Greg M. Parks. I feverishly took about three or four pages of notes on my notepad uh, as they were uh, going through all the information. So I wrote all that up on xflboard.com where I write about the XFL. But just to kind of give an overview on some of the hit the high points, I guess, on the information that they gave. Uh, Rosters, it's going to be 66 for training camp. It'll be 50 for the regular season. Contracts are going to be about 59,000 per, um, and that's with 
you know, $5,000 per week. So it's going to be about 50,000 per week. Plus you add in, it's going to be 800 per week during training camp. You're going to have a $1,000 win bonus. And so that all would kind of factor into the $59,000 a year. Obviously, uh, some players will get paid more, the high-level quarterbacks. The interesting thing that they revealed about that is they're hoping to sign some top-tier quarterbacks soon because leading up to the draft during the fall, they want to work with those quarterbacks three to four days a month, have a quarterback guru come in to work with them so that by the time the season starts, they are at top performance level. Because as we know, uh, as the quarterbacks go, so goes the quality of play. And they want the quality of quarterback play to be as high as possible. So they're going to hire someone, I think. They didn't name who it was. I don't know if they have someone in mind who's going to work with some of the top-level quarterbacks during the fall and, and really work on mechanics, footwork, that sort of thing, and go from there. So sounds like they're going to try to assign quarterbacks again, the, the top-level quarterbacks, uh, one to each team, just like they did in uh, 2019. Players' contracts will have an NFL opt-out at the end of the season, uh, which coincide with NFL training camps really starting to ramp up or off-season programs starting to ramp up anyway. The draft is going to be mid-November. Another nice nugget that Doug Whaley dropped was that they don't know the specific date yet because they're waiting on their television partners to see how they want to produce it. So it sounds like ESPN is going to have a part in this draft as opposed to just doing it via conference call like they did in 2019. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that uh, develops. They also revealed that any player that finished the 2020 season on an XFL roster, provided they are not under contract now to a, another pro football league, will automatically have an opt-in to the XFL draft pool. So they will be sent notification. Those players who are eligible will be sent notification and they can opt in to the draft. They're looking at about a 55 or 60 round draft, multiple supplemental drafts. Once we get into December and January, the draft will be done in phases again, similar to what was done in 2019. And really, that's about it. There won't be a Team 9 like they had in, in 2020. It'll be more like the NFL style where teams bring in players usually on a Tuesday because that's the player's off day. And the team will work out free agents to kind of compile a list in case a player gets injured or, you know, for performance reasons, they'll want to assign one of these players. Sounds like the league will be responsible for bringing in those uh, workout players on Tuesdays. The, the DPPs, the coaches may be able to uh, take a look at those players during the workout and, and potentially they, they get added to the uh, pool of free agents. And there's also the possibility of doing one more showcase around the time of the Nick Novak specialist showcase, which is slated for October. Russ Giglio mentioned that there were 1,300 players who were on showcase waiting list for the XFL showcases. So they are looking at potentially doing another showcase in October. If you are a player or an agent, um, the folks with the XFL advise you to pay attention, keep checking XFL.com because that's where they'll have the news. If there's another sign up for another showcase. The showcase is very interesting because I know there's a lot of players on Twitter that are just tweeting, not only at the XFL, so if you're one of the players that are tweeting at podcasts like myself and me as the XFL Mike, we hear you 
I can't get you into the league. All I can do is give you a platform to come on here and talk about yourself and hope that the league's listening. But I know one person actually responded back. Steve Guerra, co-founder and president of Breakaway Data, who has not been tagged in these, actually responded back, we hear you. If you can get a couple of your buddies together, you tell us whereabouts in California and we'll set up. So I wonder if that kind of played into why there might be another showcase. It's interesting because there are a bunch of players clamoring for an opportunity. And I understand it if you're seeking your dream, but it just comes to a point like, okay, maybe also they haven't quite seen what they had hoped to see in some of these showcases. I mean, what are you getting from that when you hear this potential adding a seventh showcase? I, I Yeah, I also want to make note that Whaley said that DPPs can work out players at alternate locations. So, you know, if you are a player and for some reason you didn't get in a showcase and you have an in, you know, a DPP, you know, a coach on one of these staffs and you can get, you can get the message to them. They'll come and work you out at a, at a location anywhere in the country, basically. Now, if they like what they see and they alert the XFL office, you're going to go into the draft pool. So you're going to be eligible to be picked by any of those eight teams, not just the team or the DPP that worked you out. So if you're a player and you've got an agent and you didn't make it to a showcase and your agent has an in or knows uh, some people in the league, I mean, use those contacts because those DPPs can come and work you out uh, anywhere in the country. But I think back to your question about the potential of a seventh showcase, I really think it's hard to say. I don't know what the XFL league expectations were for these showcases in terms of you know, how many players they wanted to pull from the showcases to put in the draft pool. I know that Doug Whaley has been very consistent when we've talked to him about really pushing hard for those players who get cut at the NFL training camps and trying to be very aggressive in signing those players and putting them in the draft pool. And that's month plus away. So they're really not going to know what that draft pool is going to look like quite yet until those cutdowns happen, until they can negotiate, until they can talk to those players and kind of pitch the league to them. I think what it really is, is they've got 1,300 guys on a waiting list. And, and if they're going out to this kicking camp anyway, and the specialist camp, they probably figure, why not? You know, it's not going to cost us more in travel. We're already going to be out there. Why not make this available to players who, for whatever reason, couldn't come out during the summer and do a showcase? So I don't really know if it's really any more beyond that. I think there is truly a desire by the league to leave no stone unturned. And if they have to put on another showcase, and if they find five, six, 10, 12, 30 players from this showcase that they can invite to the draft pool, they probably think it's worth it because anything that builds up that draft pool, anything that improves the quality of play in the league, they're going to want to do. It's very smart. They have been very um, involved in what's the organization's name? Is it National American Combines? I believe are American uh, national yeah. combines. I believe it's ANC. They're the ones that are running the showcases, like, you know, running the drills in the showcases and things like that. And I think they were also the group that ran the XFL showcases in 2019 as well. And they did it for 2001. I had ah. found out that in 2001 season had 58 players that came through those combines and I believe 2020 was a hundred and something. It might've been 160. Don't, don't hold. I know it was like 58, 57, 58 was from 2001, but the number was like triple. That is what they had used. 
So there is a partnership or a working relationship, at least, between them, obviously, and it is bearing fruit. So why wouldn't you take advantage of it? But what I also find interesting about it is the place, because this is going to be in San Diego, is where the specialist one. That's a market waiting for a team. They had their NFL team loss. They had a team in the AAF. Unfortunately, that folded. Maybe this is a way to kind of just keep something in the market because back in Hawaii at the Hawaii Showcase, Dwayne The Rock Johnson was asked about expansion, and he touched on it to a point is on the horizon. We're thinking about it, but we got to take care of this first. But there are opportunities and we are not oblivious to them. You know, I'm paraphrasing or, you know, I'm not trying to quote him, but that essentially we saying, is this a smart way of why they're in San Diego? And if they're going to do the two, is it just enough publicity in there that, okay, two, four years down the road, if things are looking good, San Diego still doesn't have a team someplace. They're in Arizona where they used to have the hot shots. You look at some of these cities that they did do some showcases they didn't do them everywhere it's so were some of them strategic placements that kind of still test i'm assuming bradington had nothing to do because it's just just (laughs) south enough of tampa because they already chose orlando i can't see that happening but san diego definitely be an interesting place to put a team now i'm speculating I don't know what to read into the locations of the combines just because, as you mentioned, American National Combines are really running them. So I don't know how much they had a say in where the combines were taking place versus the XFL. Like, I don't know if the XFL pushed to have it in Arizona, for example, or if that was an ANC decision. Doing it in San Diego, obviously, the XFL has a relationship with Nick Novak. Uh, He's going to be running, you know, his camp is running the specialist camp and he was a kicker for the LA Wildcats in 2020. So obviously that relationship there makes sense. And it's it's probably easier to have a specialist only camp than to try them out along with, you know, the, the other players that are, uh, you can, it's easier to do drills with them uh, at high schools, as opposed to like, you know, asking players to kick off at, at a high school field or punt and really get a good read on, their uh the distance and things like that so i think san diego is an intriguing market for the reasons you talked about you know it mirrors a lot of what made st louis attractive that they had recently lost an nfl team and they wanted to prove that they were a city worthy of a major league football franchise which they certainly did with the battle hawks in 2020 and you wonder if there's that same appetite in san diego they lost the chargers to los angeles i'm not sure the attendance but i think they had pretty good attendance in the aaf Uh, San Diego did in 2019. So I think that's a market. I mean, if you look, if you made a list of the top five markets that the XFL should expand into, I think San Diego would certainly be on the list. But so to answer your question, I don't know if it's kind of like a stealthy way to dip your toe in the water of that market and see what interest is there versus just kind of the ease of of doing a a camp with Nick Novak, who you already had a previous relationship with. I spun it all the way around. I went for it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so when you brought it up, I obviously wasn't aware of it. I'm like, oh, it just got my mind thinking. Had I known that previously, I probably wouldn't have tried to go that route. But you just kind of got me in a, in a moment being like, hey, what the heck? It's just possible. <laughs> Greg, it has really been a pleasure. And I appreciate you coming onto the show to discuss not only the XFL Town Hall event and their announcement, but obviously Neil Stratton's Zoom meeting. 
with uh, mm-hmm. the two XFL executives, not the three. We'll get Mark Ross one of these days. <laughs> oh, we just, I've missed out, but you've missed out on twice. Like I said, I, I've enjoyed it and I'd love to have you come back on sometime, you know, in the future yeah. so we could discuss other XFL developments if you'd you know, love to join me. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. I know you kind of plugged some of your work earlier. If some of our listeners wanted to be able to follow you and your work, where could they do so? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Greg M parks. You can follow me. I write for the XFL for xflboard.com. So xflboard.com, you'll front page will be a lot of my stories that I've written and there's plenty more to come. Uh, I also cover pro wrestling for pwtorch.com. So I have a weekly podcast on Sunday nights called Wrestling Night in America on pwtorchdailycast.com. So if you happen to be a wrestling fan as well, you can check out pwtorch.com for my written work and also my podcast that I have there. Perfect. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Mike. Greg and I had planned to do the city's announcement interview for a few months. So it was good to finally get the announcement and to have him as a guest. Not only is Greg a good person, but he's also a great journalist. If you are not already following him or his work at XFL Board, I recommend that you do so. As I have also previously mentioned, I will now be joined by wide receiver Jake Boschever to discuss his football journey, showcase experience, and draft invitation. Welcome, Jake. I appreciate you taking the time to join the show to discuss your football journey and XFL showcase experience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. The pleasure. You played your collegiate ball at Division I football championship subdivision Long Island University, where you eventually converted to being a wide receiver. Can you take a moment and share your college experience with our listeners? Uh, yeah, so I came into school. I played quarterback throughout majority of my life in high school. I was a pretty good quarterback down here in South Florida, but I was a little undersized. So it was like the recruiting process a little challenging for me. So LIU is one of the first schools that really gave me like a good scholarship. So I took that advantage being a young kid. You know, I thought it was cool to be on scholarship. So I went up to New York. To be honest with you, I was, uh, I thought I was like, you know, like I was, a, like I said, I was a good quarterback in high school and everything like that. But then going to LIU in the beginning, I did struggle a little bit, you know, the f- speed, like the size. The playbook, I guess you would say, it was a little challenging at first. So, like, that was my first year. It was, like, really just trying to pick up the offense as best as I could and just trying to get adjusted to the game. And I didn't, like, develop as much as I wanted to. So, in the beginning, it was definitely challenging at LIU, just being a quarterback. And then eventually, like I said, so, like, I really didn't play at all for my first two and a half seasons there. Like, pretty much, like, zero reps in the beginning. So it was like, it was hard, you know, being a kid that was really good from like the Mecca of like football in Florida to going up to college and being humbled for like, you know, two years, a long time, like football world of not really getting any playing time whatsoever. So it was, that was definitely difficult until I've definitely, I had to sit down with my coach and I said, like, I'm dying. Like there's nothing I won't do to get on the field. And like, I knew I was really like a good enough athlete to make the transition so then between both parties, like we made the agreements, like I was in a transition to wide receiver. So that's kind of how that started there. I think going into my red shirt. So was the wide receiver position brought up by you or the coach, or was it just kind of in the conversations how it came about? I brought it up originally. I mean, I could, I can remember like I was 
I was like in my dorm room, just like, I think I was like watching like my high school football highlights, like playing quarterback. And I was like, dang, like what happened? Like where, where am I at right now? And I was just like looking at like the team, like the situation for the upcoming season. I was like, man, I think my best opportunity is if I go switch to wide receiver and it's like, I know I'm a good enough athlete and stuff. And, you know, people like Julian Edelman were starting to have success at that time in the NFL, like the transition quarterback receiver. So I kind of thought like, Hey, why can't I do that? So that's kind of how it started. I brought it up to my coach and he was, I think he was all for, you know, maybe they didn't really see that I was going to be a quarterback in the future there. So it was kind of just like, all right, if you think you could do it, kind of just go for it thing. Wasn't really probably too much thought for them. It's cool because it's always interesting. You know, you hear the Edelman, you know, ends up playing in the Super Bowl, being a Super Bowl champion, and but he was a college quarterback. But I think we lose sight on how many of these players, such as yourself, that started out somewhere even get recruited based off that talent and then somehow get converted into another position, whatever reasons, there's probably numerous of them out there, maybe pro games, just looking for somebody purely athletic. But in your case, you were recruited as a quarterback and it took a couple of years and it just took you, so to speak, chomping at the bit to kind of start having that conversation. Were you ever just in practice, like lining up in weird formations? You know, we hear like the, people know the wildcat did it ever push you out there and give you that idea or is it just something you just purely off the film you're like you know i got to do something different i got to be willing to adapt and do something different myself yeah so there was one practice so i was i think it was my redshirt freshman year so it'd be my second year in college third i was the fourth string quarterback so i was running the scout team then this third string quarterback i believe like was getting no reps because he was over there with his starting offense, just being a third string quarterback as a fourth string quarterback, we get all the reps. And I guess he said something to the coach about he wanted more reps. So they moved him to the scout team to run the offense. And then I went out and split out a receiver. I started having a little success. The receiver I was like, wow, I was having fun. I was like, wow, I could do this thing. Like just off not even doing it before. That's kind of how it started. You got a taste of it, right? Yeah, exactly. So you were getting ready to talk about your redshirt uh, senior year. So I kind of cut you off on trying to understand how we got here, but go ahead, continue. So going into my redshirt, so I came home, like when I first started, it took me like a real year to like really like get out of that awkward stage of changing positions, I would say. So I was like, all right, this kid could play ball. So I was going into like my redshirt junior year. I really was like coming down here in the summers, like training with all these like Big time like trainers down here in Florida, like Sly Johnson, like Goldfeet Global, like guys that train a lot of like big time players. And I was just being like that guy. Like I wasn't really afraid to jump into there, knowing that like I wasn't gonna look good as everyone, but I still kept like showing up and just having that work ethic and stuff. Like especially I feel like that I, I learned a lot of that being at LIU, some of the older guys. I just like that caught on to me. So like I was I lost that like a sense of fearness of like going out there and looking stupid. Like the first time you try something. So I wasn't really, I really was never afraid to do that. So then I got pretty legit player going into my red shirt junior year, like a chance to compete. I feel like I surprised a lot of people. Like I was like, a, I was a role player in the beginning of the season. And like every time it was an opportunity, like I would make a big play. Like I remember like, I didn't have a lot of catches in the beginning of the, the season, but I'd like, I think I was like leading the whole conference in yards per catch. Like it was like 27 yards per catch. I would have like, nine catches for like, I think it was like, whatever it was like 280 yards, something like that. Something stupid. Like it was, and then towards the end of the season, we were ranked number two team in the country. And 
the receivers, the kid in front of me got hurt, tore his ACL like on a Thursday practice, going to like week 10. The coach gave me the nod. It was like my first official start. And I ended up having like seven catches for like 100 yards and like a big touchdown. And that kind of like jump started me, like the buzz. And then the following week, it was like the conference championship game. And I had like another big game. And we played like in the playoff game. And I was like the leading receiver and stuff like that to finish my junior season, even though we lost in the, the quarterfinals. So that kind of started my buzz going into my senior year. Like kind of like, wow, I finally got onto the scene, like the surprise player. And then my senior season, uh, we struggled a lot. We lost like a lot of talent. But uh, I was the guy my senior year. Like, I led the team. And, like, I didn't have, like, crazy stats. We struggled offensively. You know, we had a lot of injuries and stuff like that. We were a young team. But, like, I led the team, like, receiving and the yards, touchdowns and stuff like that in my senior year. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's cool. I mean, it's really awesome how some people might make the switch but still might struggle to kind of get a foothold on the roster and on their placement, you know wide receiver one, two, three, four, and you're down the depth chart a bit, but it's kind of cool. You got it. And then sometimes it's about big breaks. Unfortunately, it takes somebody else to go down for somebody else to get that opportunity. And then when you have that opportunity, you obviously shine, which is awesome. Thank you. There seems to be a stigma for players who haven't played division one power five conference school. How do you go about ridding yourself of that stigma and proving that you're just as good of a player, if not better, as any one of those players? When I first got invited to an all-star game, the Tropical Bowl down in um, Daytona Beach, Florida, after my senior season, like I was invited to that. And that was like FBS, like high-level talent for some of the bigger schools and Power 5 schools. And I went out there and I was the receiver of the week during the practices being from an FCS school, I was like, dang, like, I really, like, I belong out here and, like, I could play with the best of them. And that's when, like I said, I just started getting, like, I started really picking up momentum from, like, you know, with some a few teams and stuff like that from some scouts. Like, I feel like, like, that question mark of, like, just who was that kid? Like, who was that guy? It was, like, kind of, like, intriguing that was, like, out here, like, from a smaller school, like, beating kids from, like, Florida State and stuff like that, like, trying to cover me, so... That really gave me that confidence, definitely. I would say definitely after that tropical bowl is what gave me like that that momentum and confidence I needed. So post-college, you caught the eye of several multiple professional teams, which included the New York Giants, Seattle Seahawks, Baltimore Ravens, Miami Dolphins, as well as Canadian Football League's British Columbia Lions, I believe. Yes. And you also had a stint, I believe, with the Vancouver Beavers and Anchorage Sled Dogs. For arena teams? Yeah, so I don't know exactly. To be honest with that, it's a funny story with those two people. I don't know exactly. Like, I've never signed anything. I've never actually played with those arena things. I don't know if it's, like, an online thing or, like, a fantasy football. But people have brought that up to me. But I have no recollection of any of those arena teams. I've never played for them or never spoke to anyone in those leagues. Never even participated in a tryout, training camp, or anything. Okay. All right. Nothing whatsoever. All right, well. (laughs) We cleared the air here, people. There's something online that's not true, okay, which is not that surprising. Can you share with us some about those other experiences, how they came about, you know, what they entailed? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So um, I came out during the COVID year, so there's obviously 
Well, I came out right when it started happening. So like, it was kind of like that what was going on thing. I was like one of the last people to get their pro day in. And I was like dealing with an injury. It was like kind of crazy looking back at it that year. I was dealing with an injury like three weeks before my pro day. I wasn't really going to participate. I felt like with my hamstring and stuff like that. And then like a week prior, the COVID really outbreak started happening where like people were saying like the pro days and everything's going to be canceled. So I kind of made a decision. I was like, gosh, like a small school kid. I really didn't feel like I was in a position to hold out of anything. I thought I was gonna have a chance to run again. at like FAU's pro day later in the year or later in the next month or two before the pro day. But once like everything started announcing they were getting canceled and my like date was going to be the last date, I kind of like winged it and I went for my pro day and like, I didn't perform like anywhere near. I thought like I definitely could have just cause I mean, I had a pulled hamstring, like we're athletes. I was like, you can't, when you're pulled hamstring, you can't be running around full speed, like your maximum potential. So I feel like I didn't have like nowhere near as what like my pro day should have been. But I mean, I did get a bunch of looks from a bunch of teams and then like post draft, I had a chance of being like a free agent, priority free agent guy. And uh, I feel like my pro day kind of maybe set me back a little bit just with off the numbers and stuff, again, with the injury and stuff like that. But then I did get an opportunity to go to the Giants rookie mini camp. And then unfortunately, the whole thing got canceled because of the COVID thing. So that kind of dotted that whole nod an opportunity. So that was kind of a, that kind of stunk for a guy like me that knew like reading about stories like Adam Thielen and stuff like that were guys that were just rookie mini camp kids that you know, are now superstars in the NFL. If he can't, I was thinking, I like, always think about like Adam Thielen came out my year where people know who Adam Thielen was. Like if there was no such thing as rookie mini camp, definitely was hard. So those opportunities that kind of never really got my chance. Then the spring league came around. So I played in the spring league and I uh, played for coach Chuck Breshenhand, who was a defensive coordinator for the Raiders in that Super Bowl team. So it's pretty big coach. And then, also, Coach Robert Ford, who's going to be the OC of the Orlando XFL team, he was my offensive coordinator down there, too. And I played for them and had a pretty good experience down there. I played good and uh, caught the eye of the BC Lions CFL team. So I would have been in communication with that coach and everything. And then I think in February of that year, I had a workout with BC, and it went really well. And then I just, I didn't hear back from them for, so it was February, June, July. I didn't hear back from them for like two months, nothing back yet. So I was almost like, dang, I, I kind of thought maybe that ship sailed. And then I had a workout down in Miami. Um, Seahawks and the Ravens came down and worked out a bunch of us, like free agents down in Miami. So I had that experience and did that. And I performed well, but everything, but it was, like I said, like being COVID and everything, it was hard. Like roster sizes were down. And stuff for being like a kid in my shoes it was really kind of just challenging to get in. But then um, I, th- I believe I got a call. I was crazy. I was like working delivery dudes at the time, just trying to make ends meet to pay for my training and stuff like that. And I got a call, I believe it was July 1st. And I kind of thought the CFL was like, I had my hopes up for the BC, but then I kind of thought it went away. And I believe July 1st, I get a text from the GM like, do you have a passport? And I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, coach. Yeah. Then I didn't hear back from him. And the next day he calls me and I knew camp started July 3rd. So I was like, wow. Like, so then he calls me like, hey, Jake, do you want to be a lion? I was like, yeah, coach. Absolutely. 
And he's like, all right, let's, let's make this happen. And, like sent me over my contract and everything. So it happened all really quick. Like, oh. like I said, I was delivering, I was literally delivering food, like not knowing what was going on. And the next thing you know, I was on a plane to Vancouver to go to camp. That was like, it happened pretty fast. And that was like a pretty cool thing of like staying ready. Just, like, you know what I mean? Never really know when your opportunity is going to come. And then when I got to BC, I remember I got there on the first day on the depth chart. I was the 19th receiver on the depth chart. Literally, because I was the last kid there. I was number five at every single position. Five, 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 five. And at the CFL level, like pretty much everyone there has played in the NFL or been a part of an NFL camp before. It's legit talent. So I was like, dang, like how, like I'm literally 19. These kids have been like on Zoom meetings, going over the playbook for the last three, four months. They had a whole COVID season canceled. So this is like, they had their team set for a while. And here I am was back home in South Florida working delivery dudes, not knowing what's going on. Next thing you know, I'm, gonna, I'm out here, got to go compete against these guys. And then, uh, but like I stayed really just like locked into like my, uh, my beliefs and like my schedule and like really, uh, I had like sticky notes all over the wall about just like staying in the moment and like staying locked in. I always talk about like my biggest accomplishment. It might not seem much to a lot of people, but just was making that team, being like the last kid on that roster, like 19 receivers. And like every single, like I said, every single kid that was like on the NFL experience, like, like multiple years. And then being the rookie, the camp, like the leading receiver for all rookies throughout the camp in BC and like making the team to being one of the eight receivers on the team. I feel like it's something I take a really good pride in, like, cause like being like a football player, you know how last kid in the door is literally the first kid out the door too. So like, I'm pretty sure everyone expected me to get released and everything like that. But being a kid that made the team, I feel like that was a really good feeling and like really gave me the momentum. That like I'm here and I, I belong definitely. Well, it's an opportunity and the experience that you're able to take away from it, right? It's everything's a learning opportunity. So you have the opportunity, the experience you'd be able to take away to wherever you go, which kind of brings us now that I understand you participated at the XFL Florida showcase. Correct. I, as a member of the media, I was also in attendance at IMG Academy. Uh, however, the media session was wrapping up as the offensive session was coming on. So I wasn't able to watch you participate in the drills or anything. So how do you believe your performance was an overall experience? Oh, I thought I did really good. I feel like I ran really good. I was in the best shape of my life. All my routes were crisp. Caught every single pass thrown at me. And I feel like I definitely left there feeling like I, my, the best version of myself was left out there for sure. Awesome. Did you get any opportunity for any one-on-ones with XFL coaches or key staff members? Yeah, I, I talked to a few coaches. I talked to Coach Anthony back. And then I've been in communication with a few of like the personnel people as well through online. And uh, I spoke to Von Hutchinson, I believe his name is a personnel people there too at Tampa. Well, obviously you must've made an impression between your performance, your conversations, because since the showcase, you posted on social media that you've received a draft invitation. I'm assuming you have since then accepted it. Yeah, I accepted I accepted it. Yep. So, I mean, it seems like a stupid question, but I just <laughs> had to put it out there before I just keep going. Have you had any more communication back from the league as far as what the next step might be? Uh, yeah. So they send me, they said, is they're going to send stuff to it's like medical history and reports like that over the next few weeks. They didn't really specify. It was really quick. It was, they sent an email. It was like, you click yes to accept. 
and then they send one follow-up email saying thanks for accepting someone's going to reach out to the next coming weeks about the next steps along with medical history back like background checks and stuff like that so that's kind of really been it so far in the whole process so they haven't mentioned anything about pre-draft workouts whether it's a collective or with individual coaches or anything like that no nothing like that yet which probably makes sense because they still have showcases left in Texas and Arizona. And I know in October, they're going to do the specialist showcase. So maybe they're going to wait for once they get through July's and then maybe that window of August through September, they might potentially look to do so again. I'm, I'm speculating. I don't, I don't know anything. So I just thought I'd ask, you know, there's a window there that doesn't seem like they're going to be too busy boots on the ground so to speak so maybe there might be something there but i'm just curious what that looks like because it seems very common when you look towards the national football league how they bring guys in for one-on-one workouts so i was just kind of curious if the xfl would do something similar and it wouldn't surprise me if they actually did yeah i think that would make sense i think that they're probably going to do something like that just to you know when you have those big showcases i'm sure how much are you really able to get to see like you know what i mean that real up close version of your like the players you want to draft with limited reps and stuff like that. So once they really narrowed it down, I believe they're narrowing it down to like 800 kids. I think it's going to be easier for them to evaluate and stuff like that. I think what we're seeing is it's someplace around 200, 250 participants at each showcase. It probably mm-hmm. looks to be about the right number just based on who I saw in just watching the defensive session that morning session at IMG. When they're rocking their 40s, it was just one right after another. One guy's hitting the line. They're blowing the whistle. The next guy's already – they're telling them who's on deck. So I remember seeing all that. So they're rocking. They're just getting the information. And according to Doug Whaley, uh, XFL executive, he said it was an information-gathering session for all the coaches. They weren't really looking to start putting together their own list for the draft. It was they're all working together to gather information. So it makes more sense. But it would make sense at some point that they need to hone in on somebody before they potentially draft somebody. Because there are some guys that have a lot of game footage. You know, they have all those highlight reels. And there's some guys that are a little bit more limited. That You know, especially the guys that came out of the JUCO and NAIA, those guys don't have as much footage. Because if the school isn't a big-time program, there's not all those broadcasting deals. Everything's so different. So those guys might be a little bit more hindered in that department. So the only opportunity they really have is being in front of somebody, you know, they might've been had just enough to get accepted into the showcase or a combine in some of these, um, you know, the American national combines and stuff like that. The XFL also participates that, but it is, they're kind of limited. So it's especially if you only catch one coach's glimpse at one station, did you get your whole body of work at that showcase in front of a coach? because they were all working different stations and stuff. So I I could see how it would be important to get in front of somebody and see some routine repetition of route running or just speed. You know, if somebody got it just in the one-off or can they maintain speed by running it several times? And I remember in sports, we used to run what we called suicides in basketball or even in soccer on the soccer field. It wasn't just to make us run to run. It was a goal to see how close are we at number 20? Were we to number one to see who had the endurance and still had like top end speed in those cases. Coaches are over the stopwatch. So I could see how running 140, it's important. But can you run that in the fourth quarter when the game's on the line, so to speak? You know, 
when somebody exactly. might be bringing in fresh legs, you know, fresh DBs or something. What have you been doing outside of football? I know you mentioned you were doing some delivery and stuff. I mean, how about today now that those CFL days are kind of behind yeah, you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm still, I'm, uh, I'm working like I serve. I'm a, I mean, I've been serving and like bartending and stuff like that at a restaurant here with one of my buddies who's also kind of in a similar situation as me too. So that's what I had to go down to Miami every single morning and train at Bomberitos down in Miami. Bunch of like big time NFL players. You know, I feel like I, I really established a relationship with some cool guys and like some all pros. Like I feel like Jordan Poirier, I'm familiar with who that is like really taking me under his wing the last year and like takes me with him. Like we train together every single day down in Miami, takes me to his trainer up in Boca and I get to really spend like a quality time with like an all pro safety is like really something like a, trying to take advantage of and like cherish like you know, shout out to him he's like really helping me out big time and like giving me that confidence i need like training with him and like giving me like that self-belief that like i belong here and like i know like i could play at the highest level so that's kind of like my mornings at night i'm i'm up till you know 12 31 o'clock in the restaurant you know just trying to do so i could pretty much pay for my training right now every single day so it's a grind yeah, you're doing what it takes to to make your dream happen. So, how important you're mentioning working with an all pro DB? Have you learned the difference of what it takes to train as to be a pro versus a collegiate player or just somebody that was trying to first make it into the CFL or something? Has there been a major difference in your training because of that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like like over the last year, just like the intensity of my training and like being around guys like Jordan Poirier, like Xavier Rhodes. Um, like I'm throwing with Mitch Trubisky like twice a week right now. Like just being around all these guys and seeing like the work they bring like every single day. And these guys are the best in the world getting paid millions of dollars. So like it like puts in your perspective, like where I am now, like these are the guys I want to be competing with and playing against. Like I have, and they're doing all this, like they're, doing their stuff in the morning, getting massages, you know, doing later sessions in the evening and stuff like that. I'm like, these are the guys I want to be on the field with and I'm not there yet. So how could I be doing less than these guys? So I really took in like a perspective and I'm so appreciative to a guy like, like I was saying, like Jordan's like really, I'm really close to him right now. That like In reality is he doesn't need to really take me under his wing right now. He's a 10 year vet, the best brain, like what really pro would he get out of that? But he, he does. And, he sees something in me. He really believes like I could play like, at the highest level in the NFL and my potential. So I'm blessed that I get to do my hour session with him at Bomberitos, like straight speed work. Then like we do 30 minutes of releases where I'm going against him and then Xavier Rhodes and like even reps games like JC Jackson and stuff like that out in the field. And then like we'll go up and work out with our uh, per- like a bigger powerlifting coach, Coach Mark down in Boca. And like getting a lift with him later in the session. So I'm really just like doing his day to day training philosophies. And he's the best in the world. So I feel like that's really to my advantage. Like I'm getting literally the same exact schedule as the guy who's the number one safety in the world on Sundays. It's awesome. Yeah. As I've mentioned, I've had an XFL executive on the show before. So I typically provide each of my guests an opportunity or a last plea, if you will. If XFL coaches or key staff members were to tune into this episode, what is there about you that is not known that you'd like for them to know about you? And why should they offer or select you 
in the draft over another player? I think it would definitely be like my will and like my want and like how obsessed I am with the game. Like I've been in this for the free agent process of grinding for like a year and a half, two years now where, you know, I'm, I have a a really good major. I have like minors, like I'm a smart, intelligent kid. Like I'm more than capable of getting a really quality job, but like, I know I want this so bad in football and I know like I could play in the NFL, XFL at the highest level and compete. But I, I just continue to, you know, do the dog days of like paying my dues, working in a restaurant at night, doing what I got to do to pay for my insurance, never give up on that dream. And a person who has been through like every single ranks along the way of being like playing on the bench in college, being a quarterback my whole life and really having to learn like all the little details of the game and like someone with minimum, maybe minimum opportunities, but still like finding a way to succeed. Like I said, like in Canada, like that wasn't easy. And just like, I would think someone that really just want, like do anything in the world to play at that level and get like that true chance and show myself. I feel like that's what I have over other people. Like not a lot of people I feel like would do what I'm doing right now to make this happen. Gotcha. Jake, it has been a pleasure, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show to talk with me about your XFL showcase experience and just journey overall. I hope you're selected in the draft in November because I would love to have an opportunity to bring you back on the show and talk about how things are going for you and how your team is progressing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You got my word on that once once I'm in there, 100%. Awesome. If some of our listeners wanted to be able to follow you and your journey, how can they do so? You can follow me on uh, Instagram. It's my uh, Jake underscore Bofshever. And that's also my Twitter handle, too. If I spell it out for you, it's uh, B-O-F-S-H-E-V-E-R would be my last name. And then J-K-E is my first name. Right. Good deal. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jake. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mike. You're welcome. I enjoyed having Jake on the show. Every player has a unique journey. Learning of them is important in understanding why professional alternative football matters. I am happy Jake received his XFL draft invitation. I hope to see his name called and we can see him playing in the league in 2023. Let's go to the Let's Talk XFL fan line. Kelly Cofield, Rockford, Illinois. I think the USFL and XFL should play games players championship for the division, each division, and playoff teams. Kelly, you are not the only person who believes the USFL and XFL should in some way work together. Personally, I believe this line of thinking is a bit premature. Both leagues need to focus on establishing themselves. Perhaps after a few seasons, the leagues can consider entering into discussions on ways they could work together. Like Kelly, if you have a comment, question, or hot take and would like it to be heard on the show, reach out to Let's Talk XFL fan line by calling 863-TALK-XFL or 863-825-5935. Doing so, your message could be included in an upcoming episode. All good things must come to an end. This concludes another episode of Let's Talk XFL. As always, I am interested in receiving your feedback, so do not be a stranger. 
reach out to let me know your thoughts. And if you do so, your comments might just make it on the show. But before you go, do not forget to subscribe and rate the show on your platform of choice. One last thing. If you're interested in checking out our friends over at Royal Retros by 503 Sports, do not forget to click on the link in the show's description and notes, as well as that sweet code, Let's Talk XFL, or 10% off your purchase. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time, cheers. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Talk XFL on your platform of choice. Follow Let's Talk XFL on Facebook and Twitter at Let's Talk XFL. Do you have a question or topic you would like to have addressed on the show? Message the show via social media or send an email to letstalkxfl at gmail.com.